unbelievable. A story beyond your wildest dreams. And now, from the Coastal Pinball Research Center in beautiful Victoria, B.C., it's Vancouver Island Pinball. Well, hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Vancouver Island Pinball Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Betterlick, along with Daryl here. In this month's episode, we're going to have a tech tip on replacing one's play field, which coincides with our special guest at the end of the episode, which is Kevin from Classic Playfield Reproductions. And we talked to him about uh, the history of the company as well as where they're going. And uh, this was actually their first ever podcast. So uh, stay tuned for that. On the island itself, we basically finished up our league nights. Uh, both the Powerhouse and the Peacocks Pinball Leagues uh, have completed their seasons for 2021. We have a charity tournament on Sunday, December 12th at Powerhouse. Uh, we're looking forward to that. We've already raised $300 for our current charity uh for current charities, and we'll be adding to that tomorrow. As well, in the Mid-Island, uh, Tyler is holding his second-ever tournament at the Black Diamond Antique Shop. And uh, good news, uh, well, good news for Tyler is, is that we've uh, sold out 20 spots already, so the, the event is sold out. So congrats to him, and uh, that will be happening on Saturday, December 18th. As well, we just finished up the Women's League had a what they called a bubblegum pinball frenzy at a friend of the podcast, Lisa's place. And uh, we were fortunate enough to have two of the uh, women that played in that come into the studio and uh, give a breakdown. And here that is. Well, it's kind of nice to sit and chat about um, a really fun event we got to participate in not too long ago. Yeah, for sure. I mean, anytime I get to play pinball, is uh, it's a good day. And especially on those beautiful machines, we got to just play. Right? Like oh Lisa's collection is pretty, uh, I don't even, like epic, amazing, oh, so beautiful. Prime. Yeah. Like, and all the machines are just like, oh, they play all so nice. They do. Yeah. They're well-maintained. They have a good little tech that comes in and helps out, I think. Shout out to Daryl. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, super fun day. Like, uh, I don't think it could have gone any better than it did. It was... Uh, a lot of fun, great turnout. Lots of new folks showed up to play as well, which was really mm -hmm. cool. Yeah, I'd say probably, what would you say, like maybe half of the people had never come to a, a show or a pinball tournament before? Yeah, it I'd say like a lot. I'd say even more than that, really. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'd say probably a third of us were were players that have gone and played, you know, have IFPA numbers and stuff. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, maybe Dan could attest to who needed to get um, their numbers and stuff that day of, of new players and stuff. But I think probably two thirds of the folks that showed up to play had never really played um, other than just dropping into the arcade and stuff. And quite frankly, a lot of them did pretty well. Yeah, I played at quite a few first time players and they beat me in our in our <laughs> head to heads, which hurt my ego a little bit but I was excited that people that, were having fun that's pinball baby that's pinball baby yeah yeah there was some some players that were you know uh shockingly like they, they had some good little flipper skills like I invited uh, a friend of mine Amy who play I play hockey with and I knew that she'd come out to some of the women's events uh, pre-covid a couple times yeah. and sort of got her feet wet but hadn't hadn't done much more since and so she was she was excited to come and yeah, she was starting to hit her shots and asking questions about, well, how do I start this multi-ball? Oh, totally. You know. I think I played her three times and she beat me twice. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. I know. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a big difference too with some of these uh, with the women's tournament and this bubblegum tournament that we got to go to is um, sort of I know that I showed up a little like pretty loose to play and like less mm-hmm. less you know competitive intense and like happy to tell people or show people things like how, like how things go like you know with with rule sets or whatever if they asked mm-hmm. and if they wanted to learn and um, where sometimes when you play in some of the mixed leagues and the the regular week stuff that every, everybody's kind of just you know you know pleasantly more intense yeah, yeah. Just, just you know excited to play but uh you know arms crossed watching from the back of the room sort of like <laughs> oh god you know hope he doesn't get that shot because i know what that means you know and stuff so it's a little i don't know i guess just more of a fun fun vibe and fun atmosphere to play in yeah and i think that just with having so many new players like you know and those machines all having crazy awesome me- mechs on them and stuff you know when you'd hit a shot and you know, like i'm thinking of um Stranger Things when you go into the Upside Down and I, mm-hmm. I can't remember if you were if it was you playing it or but uh, uh, I, you know I was playing another game and went into the Upside Down and I heard like whoa yeah like it's totally just, yeah. yeah with all these really beautiful LED machines with the cool toys and stuff like that and oh the, my gosh. Um, yeah that happened a couple times where like people it's like kind of like Christmas you know where people get to see that mech yeah. like the the demigorgon come like down from the thing for the first time and they're like whoa dude what do I do now and I'm like hit it in the mouth hit it in the mouth <laughs> like whoa and so like stuff like that or like mini pinball and in monsters yeah they're yeah. like where'd my ball go down there man use the small like flippers and they're like oh god just giving her trying to you know figure it out mm-hmm. um yeah pretty cool stuff like yeah, seeing like, you know, kids in a candy store kind of vibe where they haven't seen this stuff before. And it's, you know, not that you get used to it playing all the time, but it's it's not like the same time when you see the that toy or that mech or that thing, that mode start the way it starts or the visuals like the, you know, for the first time. It's kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that that was I mean, my main goal when I got there was like, well, I wanted to win. But then I, <laughs> um, you know, and that's probably where I went wrong. Um, but then I got there and I saw these new people and I was just like, oh, I want to get as many people as possible excited about pinball. Right. And uh, yeah. And so that's kind of where I leaned. I just was, you know, really wanted to make sure everyone felt excited to be there and, you know, uh, support them in learning the game so that it's funner instead of being just overwhelmed when you walk up to a machine. Uh, I think that that's like, I think that's what makes a good pinball machine that you can have a new person walk up to it and find something to do in the machine that's super easy and you can like give a little bit of instruction and then they're like okay that's what I'm trying to do and then they slowly learn the rest of the machine so it's not super overwhelming and um yeah it's it's always fun I I mean it makes me so happy so um getting to show it to other people is is pretty exciting yeah I mean it's 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 still a new hobby for a lot of people it's I mean it's uh grown immensely over the last few oh, years God, but so there's huge. still lots of people that it's new to right and especially like some of the folks that came over like you know in their 20s and stuff <laughs> yeah. and like that age group like they didn't really they didn't grow up with arcades and pinball and stuff uh, the way that some of us old folks yeah. do, do you <laughs> have think that, do you think that any of them was their first time walking up to a pinball machine i didn't i don't know might have been yeah yeah it's hard to say no yeah, I mean, I've seen that at the arcade with like kids, like twenty year olds. I'll be in there, you know, playing pinball, and someone will walk up, and they 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 don't know where the flippers are, they don't the know where the stop button is. They're just like, whoa, and then they get up there, and you can tell their reflexes are lightning fast. A because they're twenty, <laughs> and B because they probably like grew up on a PlayStation or Xbox or whatever. Yeah. So they're totally used to playing um, those types of games. And it's funny too. Some of our our, uh, our friends, uh, well, one of our employees, he was like. <laughs> 
Have you played like pinball on like, what is it, the, the FX play, pinball or whatever? So like a lot of these kids play the like online pinball and have actually never seen a physical wooden real cabinet pinball machine, but they've like yeah. played the arcade version like for forever. Well, and there, and there's, I think that there used to be a pinball on like the windows machines when, you know, it was pre-installed. That's the one he was talking yeah. about. And so yeah. a lot of our kids are like, oh no, I've only ever played it on, on my, on my desktop. Yeah. Back in the day. Back in the day. I'm like, well, let me tell you about really back in the day when there was like a room full of these like wooden machine pinball machines and you'd go in and physically put your quarter in. <laughs> so yeah, pretty neat to sort of bridge that gap between the you know yeah. the youth, you know, the kids and or older folks too who just never really, you know, latched oh, on yep, to that yeah. era of playing in arcades and pinball machines in general. Yeah, well I remember at the tournament there was um and I can't remember their name, but um we were playing I think their first time playing pinball or maybe they played in the arcade a little bit. And uh um I played against them with the new Mandalorian and their reflexes were insane. Yeah. Like I was like, Are you sure? You haven't really played that much. Yeah. Just like, like pew, 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 yeah, pew, I was pew, like, pew. you know, if you actually learn the rule sets, you would be like so good at like you're you're killing it. I think right. I think they walked up and did like over a hundred or two hundred million on a on a Mandalorian game, and I was like, okay, cool. Okay, this is yeah, what we're doing. This is what we're doing. Yeah. All right, cool. Getting yeah. beat by the kids, the new yeah. kids. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, I'll take it every day. Yeah. I just, I, yeah, they actually they came into the restaurant um, as well, and it was like, oh, okay. how's your week going? They're like. Oh, not bad. I'm like, it'd be better if you joined a pinball league. Yeah. <laughs> recruit, recruit, recruit. Get them all I'm in. Doing my best, you know. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I actually ended up winning the tournament, and oh, right. right, yeah. Congrats. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I think you beat me once, though. You like? Yeah, that felt really good. Yeah. <laughs> but I bet you that that win of that self that was the cream, the cream of the cream of the day. Yeah, beating cream of you. The crop. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you beat me once too. What's that? We played a couple times. You beat me once too. Did I? Oh yeah. Oh nice. Yeah. Um, I was playing okay. I wasn't playing well, and I, I mean, the, the funny thing is, is that you know, Lisa's like, well, I'm doing really well because I own the games, and I'm like, maybe that's part of it, but like, it's pretty incredible for somebody who never plays competitively. She doesn't mm-hmm. play in the leagues and stuff like that. Um, and you see it kind of across the board with other. Uh, folks when you watch streams and stuff that sometimes you'll be watching this tournament and they're like we don't know who this guy is he just we know he's a collector but we've never seen him out playing competitively and this person just shows up and they just like slay because they're like you know but they're not used to like how the scoring works or the order that you play in or Mm -hmm. whatever and they're just like these casual players collectors that show up and just yeah like i said like just slay right and so like lisa was just like killing it yeah and that batman 66 game you guys played in the finals oh yeah oh man I had no business winning is what I was trying to get around to is that I I was playing okay. I was playing mediocre kind of pinball and good enough to kind of make the top four. Barely, I might add. And um, but I think like what happened was is um, uh, Victoria was driving the bus mm-hmm. on the second game. And I was I think I was in last place with points wise. And she was just overwhelmed because it was her first time in the space. And again, all these gorgeous machines. And so she um uh, took fourth place instead of picking the game. She right? chose position instead of game. She was just like, well, whatever, you know, whatever we play is going to be cool. I'm going to just, uh, what is it? Divert? No. Digre- well, she picked fourth instead of picking yeah. the game. Well, she, she, she chose to pick, pick position, position instead, instead of game. Of game. Yeah. And then, so it was Lisa's turn and I'm like, okay, I'm dead. Like Lisa's going to pick <laughs> Elvira or she's going to pick, 
you know, maybe I guess she couldn't pick Batman 66 again or like any of these other amazing games that she loves and plays, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't know the rule sets on very well or I haven't had a lot of experience on. I'm like, okay, I'm dead. And she was like, oh, okay, me too. I'll go third. And I was like, I don't, is this like, is there just courteousness, like courtesy going on here or like just, you know, just this lack of killer instinct because you like, you know, so I was like, well, I'm going to pick the one game in the in the room that I've been playing a lot down at the substation, which is the the new Stern Led Zeppelin game, which I think is a super fun flow master type of game. And I kind of I had watched some videos recently on the rule set. So I felt the most comfortable on that game. Mm-hmm. And um, quite frankly, I think that was the, the only reason I won is because I, oh, yeah. I had a good game on Led Zeppelin, but I would have got crushed if she picked seven Anything. eight nine <laughs> any other game really there's yeah. probably only other two or three games in that room that i i felt like i had a good um grasp, grasp on, on yeah. you know so i don't think she'll make that mistake again i think she'll know <laughs> she'll be like we're playing elvira <laughs> like, i can't hit that haunted no. house for the for the life of yeah. me so but yeah it was it was pretty cool to win and but like like i said i, I didn't really have any business winning and uh it was just so fun to meet some new folks and oh, yeah. some new pinball friends and yeah, well and and also like we haven't been in a room with you know the women's league for uh i mean there was the we did uh the, you guys did a finals for the women's league right. a couple months tie or something maybe up year, from two years ago really six months ago probably yeah but then we haven't really been in a room with those some of those folks for a couple of years and so it was kind of fun you know like um you know uh victoria came in and she was wearing her her Christmas, her Christmas pajamas, because yeah. she's like, well, I knew you guys were going to dress up, and then we didn't really. <laughs> so she was I know. Just, <laughs> we dropped the ball. Yeah, we did. Whoops. Whoopsie. But yeah, like getting to play with her again. Yeah. You know, we've played with her in the mixed stuff, but it's always. Uh, yeah, it's a different vibe, though. Totally. You know, like I said, it's it's generally a little more fun based than super competitive based. It's uh, it's always very, it always feels very supportive. You know, you're always like making sure you tell somebody they had a really great ball or. You know, yeah, totally. if someone has a question, you're more than happy to answer it and mm-hmm. stuff. And, um, yeah, uh, Haley, let's give a shout out to Haley who oh couldn't be here today. Yeah. Um, she, she organizes and, um, does an amazing job with, she put this together for, for us to attend and she did made beautiful trophies. Well, and recruited um, people, a lot of the people that came, the yeah. newbies that, that came, she put a lot of work into getting them there. Yeah, it's yeah. true. So, uh, shout out to Hales who's sure. at home with, the. Not feeling so great today, and she couldn't make it. But um, yeah, super appreciate all the work she does. Yeah, especially um, yeah. I mean, she built the women's all of the women's leagues in Victoria, which yeah. is yeah, what a delight. And her trophy making skills—that's really pretty, pretty darn awesome. Yeah. yeah, my favorite trophy I've ever won in my life is a glittery unicorn trophy that she made, and uh, as you know, it proudly displays in our living room, whether you like it or not. No, I love it. I think I actually like the one with the rubber ducky with the pinball hat. Mm, also that's, ingenious. That's my favorite, I think, mm-hmm. personally. Yeah. Delightful. Well, how did you make out in the tournament, Ash? Uh, well, you know, there was some nail biter moments. <laughs> um, one of actually one of the new players, Bugsy, came out and got second. Um, like going overall? into all? Going into the finals, yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And then they had to head out so uh open up the playing field a little bit for uh me and victoria to do a tiebreaker right uh what do we do it on oh right we did it star on the trek. new star trek mm-hmm. and as soon as i was walking up to it i was like carrie watched some movies on this and i wasn't wa- paying attention and i really don't remember how to play this game i, know, I was, I was kind of giving Ugh. you this like 
glare from the side. I'm like, oh, I saw hit it. The vengeance oh, I saw button. It. Hit it. I know. Yeah. Anyways, Victoria played great and won right. that, so she ended up in the finals. But yeah, shout out to Bugsy though for first oh time gosh. event attendee, killing yeah. it, getting into the that. finals. Yeah, they were in the finals. Yeah. I think, I think they had to go and um, tenderly help out their grandpa for the night, so they couldn't stay later. So that's adorable. Super sweet. Yeah. You know, but um, hopefully next time they can they can stay and slay because they deserve to make the the finals. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And just like a, a huge thank you for um, Lisa for opening up her home oh and her collection to us. Like what a delight and privilege to be able to get to go and play these awesome machines. Yeah. Every time I go through that door, my, I think my jaw hits the ground. Like it's just, it's right? such, so beautiful and so much, so much fun. Yeah. Um, and she just makes it so welcoming. Like, you know, yeah, with pizza they fed too. us and yeah. you know, drinks cupcakes. and cupcakes and yeah, it was yeah. just over the top. Yeah. hospitality and mm-hmm. i think everybody had a really great time we can't wait to maybe have another one down the road if we're so lucky right right your machine is broke you're losing your grip might be time for a tetris hey i wonder what daryl's working on today i think i'll go over to the coastal lab and have a look Hey Daryl, what are you working on? Oh, hi Dan. I'm just finishing up another playfield swap, uh, which is also the subject of today's tech tip. Well, that's fairly timely. Uh, yeah, coming up is our interview of Kevin from Classic Playfield Reproductions. And they make a truly great series of replacement playfields and many other repro and custom parts. Yeah, and they're Canadian as well, which is pretty cool. I see you have tools and sawdust everywhere, Daryl. What's involved in this playfield swap? Well, even though the uh, CPR does make a great product, a swap is one of the most challenging things you can do to a pinball machine. Uh, the playfields are kind of like high-quality building materials. Uh, it takes time and patience and, and some specific skills to actually install them successfully. What is the biggest reason to replace a playfield? A lot of people are doing them now. Uh, partly, uh, a lot of playfields are completely worn out. And some just are visually ugly, you know, paint's missing or they're really planked and have cracks in them. Uh, but some go to the point where play is affected by ruts in the play field, uh, uneven surfaces, or sometimes sunken inserts. I was going to say, so, yeah. Okay. Lot, lot, lots of damage. Um, plus, the availability of the product from suppliers like CPR has you know, really increased in the last little while. I remember when they started out, uh, maybe three or four fields, and now they make dozens of titles and lots of repro parts. So the availability is now there uh, for these play fields. And the other thing is the value of older games, as we all know, is increasing all the time. Things are becoming highly collectible, less desirable if they're they're beaten up and rough. True. So people looking at it and thinking, well, if the cost of a new playfield to make this thing perfect, you know, might well be worth the investment. And would there be any reason that you wouldn't want to change a playfield? Well, a couple I can think of. Um, a lot of people, collectors especially, or some collectors, uh, think originality is very important in, in a game. And, and it is true. Uh, if you have a gorgeous playfield and a beaten cab or something like that, uh, it kind of takes away from the overall character. There's a, you know, the patina of a game is part of the age and character. I, I know I remember reading, uh, oddly enough, I think it was with Smithsonian, one of the big institutions, their collecting policy, specifically for arcade games and stuff, indicated they didn't want replacement parts. They didn't want new paint on it. You know, it's part of the overall uh, uh, realism. Uh, the other thing is expense. These play fields cost, you know, north of uh, oh, $1,000. Yeah. By the time they get there. And um, the thing is, you're often replacing other parts and, and p- 
pieces on the play field at the same time, it's your opportunity to upgrade it. So you have to add that cost in. You might throw in new plastics, you know, two or three hundred dollars. And then you've got time and labor, too. You know, how much is your time worth? Because, you know, unless you're very experienced at it, it's going to take you a long time to, to do it properly. And again, is a machine worth the investment? Are you going yeah. to have a, a beaten up cab, a, a fairly undesirable title or one that, that most people wouldn't want? Are you going to put, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred dollars into a game and, and no hope of ever recouping your, your investment, which may not be important for some people, but something to uh, consider. And finally, do you have the skills and the tools and the, uh, the desire to do this, you know, not lose heart halfway through this project? You know, there's, there's certain specific things you have to do. There's uh, skills. I mean, it's certainly the best way to learn everything about a game. Sure. But maybe, you know, maybe it's not for you. Maybe you'd rather be playing than, uh, you know, spending hours and hours on this. Yeah, I guess you'd be taking your machine out of, of uh, your lineup for as long as it was going to take. Because by the time you strip down a play field, that's sort of the end of playing on that machine until it's 100% back. That's exactly right, yeah. What do you need uh, regarding supplies and stuff? Uh, are they readily available? Uh, uh, well, there's some, most tools are common. I mean, you'll definitely need a good set of uh, drill bits and a, a high-quality drill, you know, variable-speed drill, which is not unusual to have. Um, get new bits, good quality bits. It, those, the new play fields are uh, amazingly tough, and your accuracy is very important when you're, when you're drilling. Um, the standard tools like nut drivers, uh, Phillips screwdrivers, assortments, uh, maybe some power bits to a soldering iron on wire cutters and strippers. You're going to be soldering. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're getting around that uh, on a playfield swap. A Dremel tool is very useful for fine grinding and sanding and taking edges off. You'll find it's uh, it actually comes in very handy. Uh, you'll need a ton of baggies or something like uh, I use, which is a, a compartmented storage box, like a tackle box, right? for all the bits and pieces because you're going to have a huge amount of hardware coming off this thing and you want to classify it and you don't want to lose anything. Some of it's um, you know unobtainium. Yeah, I, I guess uh, classified and also uh, pictures, 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 I would assume. Oh, yeah. When you're that, doing stuff yeah, like this. We'll, yeah. we'll get to that. It's uh, pictures and more pictures. And when you finish taking pictures, take more pictures. Yep. Uh, so for specialized tools, uh, I really recommend uh, a long nose air stapler, something you won't have in your typical uh, kit. Okay. Uh, you have to basically staple down all the uh, wiring bus that basically connects all the lamps and it's bit unstripped wire, mm-hmm. but it's all stapled down. And very awkward to use a, a normal staple gun. Uh, a non-powered gun may not drive the staple in all the way. It looks sloppy. The staples are really oversized. And along those guns, you can actually get around things because you're going to have to work around uh, components sticking off the play field. Sure. I, I think they're available. I think they're sometimes just called upholstery staplers. And, okay. they, and they may be powered. Uh, I like the air because you've got really fine control. It's very easy to staple a wire and sh- you know cut right through it. Mm-hmm. or not drive the staple down so you can you can adjust them all right so that's a, a unique tool uh, the other thing people might want to consider is a rotisserie ah uh, yeah uh hard to justify for a single playfield swap but it allows you to mount a, a playfield uh on, on a platform that spins because you're going to go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth trying to uh, you know, go from the bottom side to top side and vice versa uh, when you're doing a swap, and it's something you really want to protect that top side of the play field. You don't want to be dropping it, scuffing it, or scratching it. Mm-hmm. So that's something you might consider if you can borrow one. And a lot of people can make them. There's a lot of good uh, uh, online tutorials on it. Yeah, I've, I've seen uh, a bunch of those. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's a couple of maybe specialty tools. Um, the other thing, Dan, I'd like to talk in general about the how hard it could be in some of the uh, aspects of it. Because it really depends how complex the game is. And that's something you might want to consider, too, before you dive into this uh, this horror. Sure. It is uh, a game 
from the 90s, you know, something like I've done a Twilight Zone, for example, and I'm still recovering from, from <laughs> it because there's so much to it. There's so many toys. Sure. Uh, accuracy is very important. Uh, so there, you know, is, if it, is it a complex game? It's going to take you a lot of work. Uh, if it's a, more of an 80s game or, or maybe like so 70s. sort of a, a late 70s sort of solid state. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're Single level. Definitely yeah. a lot less uh, um, in terms of components. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes it a little bit easier. I, my contrast to the uh, Twilight Zone is a Playboy that I did. Right. Which wasn't easy and, uh, and a Meteor too. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot faster. Uh, I'm Meteor. You're a Meteor, as a matter of <laughs> fact, yeah. Which was a pleasure to do, actually, mm-hmm. because it was... Uh, I wouldn't, they're not simple, but no. they're... But definitely more straightforward, as you, as you know. Right. The level of complexity is... is significantly less in 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 those machines right Right. so in a general way i mean i can't really go through every step in it but let's let's talk about some general tips and and some advice sure well what are some general tips and advice general tips and advice (laughs) well i've gone through uh, supplies uh or actually i haven't gone through supplies yet that's something we should mention too i've gone through tools Mm -hmm. uh supplies you'll need solder uh which is obvious uh some braided stripped wire which actually has been hard to find because you're going to be placing Hopefully uh, not as not all of it, but a lot of the underfield wiring. Right. Um, what I mean by that is sort of the flat wiring you'll see stapled down to to a game, not not the individuals uh, wires with insulation or anything. Right. Um, staples were just specialty item. Um, a good idea to have a basic assortment of hardware on hand. You're probably going to break some. Some are going to strip. Some may be missing. Uh, weird things like T nuts, which you'll have to look up on the internet. But they use a lot of those hex playfield screws, machine screws. Uh, just make sure you have a little bit of a, or prepare you to actually buy some because you're, you're probably going to lose bits right. and, and replace them. And this is also the time in supplies to look at what other parts you want to replace on the game. I think posts, I would always replace posts on, mm-hmm. on a game. Uh, they're not that expensive. They're, they're going to be cracked. They're going to be dirty. And it's just not worth uh, the time you're spent. I mean, new posts just add, they're like little jewels, right? They just add that little bling to the game. So sure. uh, factor that into it. Uh, check your plastics, um, things like coil sleeves and coil components. Mm-hmm. Uh, stock up on those. If this is the time to do that kind of thing. If your know, play field is exposed, it's open, it's easy to work on. So uh, look, look at those things. And also one final thing is before you pull the new play field, take a close look at your lamps. You might be replacing lots of lamp sockets. Mm-hmm. They're relatively straightforward to do when you're done doing a swap. But once it's back in, you know, they're, they're a hassle. And especially once you've laid down new wiring, you can plug it in and, you know, half the lights are out or a couple of lights are out. A lot of the sockets are stapled in too. So right. now's the time to uh, check them out if you have any question of them. Like, for example, you have to wiggle a lamp before it illuminates. Do the sockets at the same time. So stock up on a few of those. So that, uh, and in general, what time frame, like what do, what's the expectation for, let's say for a solid state, how many hours should a layman like I me, mean, not not somebody who's done a lot of them, what would what would your ballpark be like a hundred hours or I would say you probably fifty or sixty okay yeah, for for a basic time it's re- it's really hard to tell I mean you want to be slow and, and careful with of it of course of course yeah yeah but but factor you know a lot of times uh, 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 several days anyway and you're going to have delays as you get new parts or discover things that uh, uh, that you're going to need and then the tweaking I mean one of the things too is. Even after you've got everything in and it's all blingy and it's all nice and shiny and everything, there's always going to be some tweaking because this is now a new play field. Uh, I would assume just uh, just offhand right now thinking, you know, that uh, something like with the solid states, like with Meteor, you've now got perhaps an eighth or a sixteenth inch 
of clear now on there where the old play fields didn't have that. So, so you know, there's going to be a little bit of adjustment. That's oh, required. there's adjustment, yeah. And every uh, rollover, every switch has to be readjusted and set up. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of small fine uh, tweaking to do. And it gives you a few more tips, actually, on, on when you're actually doing the, the swaps. Mm-hmm. Um, as you mentioned before, pictures. I'll take, take lots of pictures. Um, before you even pull the play field, take pictures. Sure. As you're stripping it, take pictures. You know, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll be very thankful later on. And also, when you disconnect your play field initially, tape all the connections and mark them as to where they go. Right. Um, mo- most are self-evident, but there are a lot of times when you, know, you, you can easily plug something in the wrong place. Or forget where it, where it went. So yeah, just take a couple of minutes before you strip it out, and uh, yeah, mark them up. Yeah, that, that is a good idea. I mean, I know from my own history, uh, our good friend Jason found out that there's two exact same connectors in a Star Trek TNG, and uh, if you get them backwards, you end up uh, melting some capacitors, and uh, you get oil all over the place. Not good. Uh, not good. No, no, you don't want a, a work core meltdown. Yes. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Even Scotty couldn't help you there. So. <laughs> Uh, that's good. Um, a couple other small tips, I guess. Well, several tips. I could go on for, for hours on this, but mm-hmm. I'll, I'll try and uh, make it a little briefer. Uh, I would also, before you take the play field out, take the plastics off. Do as much removal as you can while it's still in the game. Okay. Uh, plastics are easy to crack and break when you're when you're handling or flipping a play field around. So do as much as you can before you pull it out. Protect the surface of the new play field at all costs. Make sure everything you lay it on is padded, uh, you know, something soft to lay it on. That's that's sort of that's the goal of this thing, right? This is the crux of what you're doing. So mm-hmm. um, do everything. And one of the, the biggest tips I can give, I could go on for a long time on this too, is holes. Oh, yeah. stuck holes, man. <laughs> you're going to get a play field from uh, CPR. Uh, it's going to have some holes drilled all the way through, but it's going to have dimpled holes uh, for maybe, maybe one to 200, maybe more. Small little dimples where you're supposed to drill to, to uh, mount things. Right. And you're going to spend a good, you know, couple hours... Uh, pre-drilling holes on this. And one of the biggest tips I can give, and I think I was talking to Carrie actually about that, they're about to embark on a play field swap, is put some sort of guard on your drill when you're drilling these holes. It's so easy to, you know, you can't control the drill necessarily. It'll right. drill right from the bottom through the top, and then you're really in bad shape. Especially yeah, to, if you hit a place that's not covered. To clarify, these are the dimpled holes are ones that you're not going to drill all the way through. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The ones the ones that are drilled all the way through, CPR and the other companies do that. CPR for you. pretty much does that. Okay. Yeah, yeah exactly. So they're, they're just the mounting holes for the hardware, basically. Right. Uh, so what I use, I usually get like a nylon acorn nut, which you okay. see often on old games holding plastics on. Drill through that and use that as a drill stop. So there's no way you can actually go through because once you're at the 100th hole or 150th hole you're not going to be taking that much care right uh, and the other tip with drilling is none of the holes that, that are pre-drilled they're, they're they're always smaller than you'll need you have to drill them out always drill from the top never go from the bottom oh, uh, through if you, right. because you're going to start cracking the clear right okay uh, and you are going through the clear coat that's what sort of fills in the holes partially it's a very thick clear on it so do you use tape on those when you when you're drilling them out or not? i never have actually okay. um but i've you know certainly not put a lot of pressure on them i've i if i have to uh go up to a large hole uh start gradually and, and work up to it okay yeah and just know the clear is very tough so you can you're going to find uh, this is where your sharp bits will come in handy that it's it's pretty tough to get through uh, so yeah, but you're going to be doing a lot of them. So just just take some care when you're doing them because, God forbid, you go through a, a you know a active section of the playfield. 
you're never you're never going to recover, right? No, there'll be much sadness. <laughs> um, there'll be much sadness, yeah. <laughs> and and you'll all that's where your eyes will go, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for, forevermore. So, um, yeah, just just really take care. One little final tip is when you get this whole thing together after you've transferred every component, and I mean everything has to be moved over to the new playfield. Uh, when you first fire it on, be prepared to shut the thing off really quickly. If you uh, see a coil lockup happening, if you uh, have no lamps when you fire it on, or any unusual behavior on all the toys of the playfield, you know, power it down right away and just check and see what you've done. That's excellent. Well, well, thanks a lot, Daryl. These are always interesting, and uh, we look forward to the next tech tip. Consuela Schlepkis used to play the pinball machine a lot down at the corner drugstore. Well, Daryl, thanks again uh, for that uh, tech tip. And as we mentioned there, we actually have we're able to sit down uh, just a little while ago with Kevin from Classic Playfield Reproductions, and here is that interview. Oh me, oh my, I heard me almost say, I wish I'd never taken this excursion around the bay. Well, today we're, we're talking to uh, Kevin, the co-owner and co-founder of CPR, Classic Playfield Reproductions. For those that don't know, and I don't know if many people don't, uh, CPR has been doing an amazing job. They have taken uh, the artwork from old playfields, uh, recreated them uh, digitally uh, over the, the last few years, and allowed restorers and uh, you know pinball buffs to actually rebuild their machine to a really high standard. It's been it's been, been quite amazing. Uh, personally, I've done well three in the last couple of months uh, using the CPR product. Uh, they've extended their product line into reproduction plastics, uh, and even have gone far as to uh, doing rethemes, which is which is which is quite neat. And I've watched over the last several years how they've advanced. But uh, anyway, um, Kevin, how are you doing today? Awesome, great to be here. Great, great to have you, um, Kevin. Can you tell us a bit about your your personal background? Well, I've been born and raised in Nova Scotia, lived here all my life. Um, I guess just for you know, a quick career background of what brought me to CPR, pre-CPR, I was basically a um, computer science student through my college years and then kind of went from there with a few friends who were also in the same um, um, courses. And then we, we built and did a computer store in downtown Halifax here in Nova Scotia for, oh, about, I don't know, five, six years and then from there, I we kind of split up. Um, we got killed by the big box stores like Circuit City and Radio Shack and Future Shop. And um, we went out into the big world on our own. And then I ended up getting hired by Xerox Corporation and ended up doing, it was the big color system. So they had, you know, the DocuColor line and the, the iGen 3 line at the time. I think they've moved well beyond that since. But it was all of the cutting edge tech for doing um, high volume, you know, color printing and stuff to make, you know, anything from brochures to, you know, little catalogs and magazines. So from there, well, I'm that's... Sorry. Right. I'm starting to see a bit of a tie-in now to, uh, to graphics and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's where I cut my teeth all the way through. I was always interested in like, you know, everyone knows Photoshop and um, things like CorelDRAW, Adobe Illustrator. I cut my teeth on that in when I was doing computer science. I really took a shining to all that because all of that was just coming to the, you know, with Windows and stuff. Um, coming out and having graphical user interfaces, which are so taken for granted now, um, you know, I, I picked that up along the way and carried it all the way through. It was always an interest doing graphics in the computer. So, yeah, it was sort of a natural fit. All that was required, of course. It had to be, you know, known and was worked with doing all the big color systems and stuff. So, yeah, after Xerox was, um, it actually was like a leaving Xerox because I was doing, you know, the, when Classic Playfield started, 
it was uh, it was sort of a thing to do in the evenings and weekends. And I had to for a couple of years that there was overlap and I had to decide to actually leave the corporate world and the cubicles and the office and really put my heart and soul into this and really give it a go. So there was some risk there, but it actually did take off. There was some hard years at the beginning, but yeah, that's the background. Right. And uh, well, how did you start in pinball? What's your, your, your early pinball memories? Oh, God, that goes way back to when I was like small, like we're talking, you know, six, seven years old. Family did a lot of camping, like RV camping with the trailer behind the truck type of thing. Um, that was just a thing to do back then. Gas was cheap and it was just everyone did it. So we go campground to campground all through the summer and fall. And it was just a thing to do on the weekends. And every campground had a recreation hall. So pinball and shoving your quarters in machines was a big thing to do. It was a big pastime at the campgrounds. If you weren't, you know, down at the beach or wherever the campground was, you'd always be at at least the kids. We'd be all gathered in the rec hall, you know, feeding the jukebox and feeding the pinball machines. There were no video games. So it was all (laughs) pinball. (laughs) Yeah. And it was just, they were these mysterious machines that captured my heart very early. So yeah, I do remember those, actually. It's, it's kind of a, definitely a lot of people have the same memory. Uh, do you have any favorite early games that you remember? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the great big scary ones is how I used to describe them. So things like, um, I distinctly remember Space Invaders um, and Flight 2000. Uh, oh, wow. Those For some reason, those two just stand out and no others. The, re- the rest just become a mishmash in my childhood memory. But those two definitely, I remember being kind of scared of them. They were 50 cents instead of a quarter. Um, they seemed like they were against you. I don't know, maybe it was just the theming and the music or the sounds. But <laughs> sure. yeah, I distinctly yeah. remember that. Yep. Oh, that's really neat. And so how did CPR actually start? I mean, where did you get these uh, kind of crazy idea to start reproducing playfields? <laughs> Well, it was kind of like uh, Mike Purcell, who's the the other co-owner and co-founder, I guess, when we started back in, say, 05. Um, it was just the idea of kind of, you know, can reproduction playfields be made? They were so needed. Like Gene Cunningham, the late Gene Cunningham at Illinois Pinball had dabbled in it a little bit after he got the, um, he bought out the factories for uh, Bally Williams and stuff and trucked everything over to Illinois Pinball there in Bloomington, Illinois. Um, he dabbled in a couple. I think he did a little run of like Kiss and I think Adam's family or something because he had the films to work with. So he was using like local companies nearby in Chicago and stuff that were still doing play fields. He kind of just commissioned it and he was making, you know, reproduction play fields, albeit just on the side. And uh, there was still that big need though because it wasn't just those two machines that needed them. They all needed them. So it was like... Um, you know, take a stab at, you know, can you do these? Like, what does it take? You know, what kind of wood? Like, how do you route them? How do you, where do you get the inserts? How do you put the art on them? Where does the art come from? And all that sort of just, you know, came to be um, and slowly had to be figured out. I mean, my God, the first, the first play field for, for CPR was Centaur using films from Gene Cunningham. He let us borrow them. And we were also having, having to pay him a royalty, like a license for that. Um, cause he was the Bally Williams, like license holder or whatever at the time. So that's where it started. It was all literally with, with hand routers. Oh my God. Using MDF, oh, like amazing, templates. Yeah. yeah. It was really rudimentary, well, but I was if, thinking yeah. now, you know, with CNC machines and, uh, you know, digital printing being such high quality. Yeah. What a, what a difference in, uh, technology. Oh God. Yeah. Because it, it ended up, um, 
starting so rudimentary, but the dream was getting the CNC machine, right? So we we had to get through those first few runs like Centaur, and I think we did Black Knight, and like I said, this was hand routing, and oh my God, very rudimentary, but it still worked, but it eventually it built up enough. We always pushed our cash flow forward to sort of go like roll it right back into the project um, and keep it moving forward to get that, that you know, started with a very simple CNC machine and, and just went from there. So, yep. Yeah, what really amazes me is is the fact that you're Canadian, that, uh, you know, with all the resources of the U.S. and the, uh, right. the Central, right, that you you guys took 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 it on. And then pretty much the only ones, well, there's only a couple I know in the, in the world that, that does anything even similar. Um, so that was that was pretty, pretty cool, actually. I thought that was a very, uh, very interesting story. Just curious there, there, Kevin, what was the time frame that the CPR actually started? Like so when? Around 05. Um, okay. And the reason I keep remembering that date is because when we launched and sort of announced the project and Centaur being our debut play field, I remember we we um, we got on the cover of Game Room magazine at the time and did an right. interview and, you know, did a, you know, an expose and pictures and stuff. And yeah, and we were we, we made the cover of the magazine just for that, just for launching this as a as like a, you know, a new venture type of thing. So and I remember it was I forget what month it was in 2005, but it was definitely 2005. And that's how I always remember it, that cover. Very cool. Yeah, well, it would have caused a huge stir in the community. Um, it did at the time like yeah. coming out. Yeah, yeah, I bet. Um, so what what's CPR like now? What are, what are you involved evolved into from those uh, early days of one or two play fields? Oh wow! It's <laughs> across the years. Well, where where are we at now? I'd say we're, we're at the 2021. So the 16 year mark. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. I lose lose count. <laughs> um, <laughs> a lot has happened through that time. Oh my God! We could write a memoir. I think when we, at, the, at the end, if we if we retire or something, we'll we'll have to look into that. But um, oh God, we've just to put it in a nutshell. I guess. We've, from you know, just being Mike and I in the very beginning, like doing it in our basements on the side with full-time jobs and just chewing on it, like one playfield run a year if if lucky. Um, you know, today we're like, you know, there's like employees and and sh- you know four or five different shops spread around the city and where there's different equipment doing different jobs and you know different people manning those positions. So you know, we went from basically two people. I think if you add us all in and include our clear coder who's third party, but um, I'd say we're like nine people now. So yeah, it's grown is what I'm saying. It, it really, mm-hmm, right. and it had to, in order to, you know, hold the, to be able to hold the bottom up of what was needed. Cause it's all driven by, by, by demand. You know, we wouldn't mm-hmm. have grown if, if these weren't selling or if there wasn't a path for these to, to have a destiny in people's machines, there wouldn't be, there wouldn't have been that growth. So yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean, one of the things is, is that you're like, say, 16 years down the road, that's more erosion on those old play fields and everything else. And as the hobby's grown, um, you know, and we've seen swings in in different older styles of machines, the Stern, the classic Stern's electronics and, and different machines like that. I mean, a lot of those machines didn't really have clear on them. So those play fields, you know, get worn out really quick, yeah. relatively speaking. Um I think it's it, it's actually interesting in the fact that you're now able to bring some scale to it, you know, and I guess progressively you've brought scale as the years have gone on, you know, being able to do multiple runs in a year and now at this point being able to do smaller, smaller jobs, like uh, smaller groups, uh, you know, I think is, is fantastic for the hobby. Um, 
because there's no longer that reliance of waiting till you had a group of 50 or or whatever you know i mean you still need something to make it to warrant actually producing them but but it's no longer the same size yeah i get the impression from the reading on the you know the community sites and that sort of thing that the demand was huge and you're probably always being bombarded with requests for this machine or that machine or some maybe sometimes an obscure game uh, you do yeah. yeah everyone everyone has their their you know their favorites and you know they they want they'd love to see a, you know a little love thrown thrown their way right so you know there's <laughs> what they 3500 4000 pinball machines made in history or titles i should say the, you know yeah. which ones do you do play fields for and which ones do you not and <laughs> unfortunately the sad fact is most of them will not have any love shown, but you, you, you throw, you know, the attention and, and the, um, and the, the work towards the ones that, uh, that do have some sustainable, you know, bottom end where there's a, there's a, you know, a group there wanting to actually buy them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I kind of remember that, or maybe a bit early on, you guys would uh, solicit, uh, Sort of well, no, I wouldn't call them pre-orders, but maybe pre-interest, just to make sure there was a market for for people uh, wanting games. That was, uh, you know, and maybe that's the only—I wouldn't even say a complaint, but the only small thing uh, you hear about the company is, can you do more, right? And can you be faster? And you can put up, you know, more at the game, or can you re re uh, re re uh, initialize another run, right? That was, uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, it's a real real success story. Yeah, I mean, you had to count heads in some way to get sort of a, a reading of of the mm -hmm. hobby, right? Like how many how many guys and gals are out there that want these, right? So we used to have those little, just very rudimentary, but it worked. I mean, you just collect, you set up a bunch of e email inboxes, one for each proposed title that we were working on artwork for. And it's like, you know, do we make 100 or 150 or 200 or 75? Like mm -hmm. how many people are truly? So those would collect names for months and sometimes years um, as our trough filled with artwork, you know, of uh, different titles to actually make in the end. And then we'd kind of go back there and refer and go through and count. Like most people would just say, I'm in for one, I'm in for one. But some people would say, you know, put me down for three, you know, and we'd go through and we'd literally read each one and just tally up a rough number. And then we knew there was a historic error in that. Like we usually chopped off 30%. You could, we <laughs> learned that lesson quick. So if a hundred people, if you counted up a hundred wants, you made 70 to be safe and you usually sold 50 to 60. Now, sometimes we got bit in the ass a few times where mm -hmm. the hundred truly came back to want them and we had to either, you know, wait another while and make some more, but it normally worked. It worked out pretty well. Was, like I say, very rudimentary, but we had to count heads somehow. So. Right. Well, next, next thing is I'm really interested, you know, being a technical guy and the kind of the guy that watches, you know, how it's made type shows. So how is it made? Uh, I'm thinking of the play field from sort of design to clear. Uh, you say you have you have some of the artwork, uh, original artwork, I guess. Sometimes. Uh, some yeah. that I guess you, you see, you guess you, you have to scan the uh, the rest of it or. Um... Oh, God, to do artwork from scratch, if there are no original films. Um, yeah, you, you try. It's a process of basically trying to find the best looking and if possible, untouched or NOS specimen that you can find and have someone be gracious enough, and we usually, you know, we'll give some enticement, like some reward for doing that, that they'll actually box it up and ship it to us. Like we want to just have a loan of it temporarily. And then oh, it'll really? go down. Oh, that, that's really interesting. Yeah, like you start with the best source you can get. Um, so that play field, um, 
if you can find that gem, and we usually do, if you do a lot of digging and are patient, sometimes even for years, you someone will pop up that has that NOS or untouched, unplayed gem that hasn't even had a screw driven into it. So the artwork on it is as perfect as it could be. You know, no gouges and chips and, you know, ball swirls or... So you, you can see it. It's it's all on there at, you know, at scale, the real deal from way back when it was produced for real, the original. And then we'll have that um, scanned in a studio scanner. We usually, it's usually a fine art scanner. Like um, I'm sure people have heard of them. Like I think we've name dropped it a few times, but they're all over the country in the U.S. Um, not so much up here in Canada, but it, they're called a cruise scanner, C-R-U-Z-E or Z-E. Um and they're big and they're beautiful and they're expensive. They're meant to put the Mona Lisa through them for archival purposes. You get what I mean? Like, right. Yeah. No, yeah. Exactly like what you mean, they have yeah. a huge table and and then this great big head slowly walks across. I think it to do a play field, I think it takes a half hour walk from end to end. And you've got this huge multi gigabyte file like master just and they focus it in right. You can focus it to the surface of the ink like even seeing through the clear coat if there was, say, diamond plate on it or something, it gets down to that tight of a focus. And and that's how that you get it into the computer. And then with that scan, you can bring it in. You've got so much resolution, you can zoom in and out on it, that you bring it into, say, Adobe Illustrator, CorelDRAW, and you then you begin the vectorization process of building um, each layer through all the color stack. To, the goal is to basically get your own set of films again you know, just like they used to silk screen them back in the day. So you can silk screen them. And that's what we did up until two years ago till we went digital. Um, still the same process, but now we can set the layers up and they will go down, um, you know, in different passes, but we get to, you know, set the colors of each one and blah, 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 and build up, build up the artwork stack that way on the surface of the wood. So it's wow, still the same that, process. That's, that's yeah. fascinating. Yeah, that's a, that's a neat process. I actually had done some work with the university here uh, with a very similar scanner. Uh, so, so I guess the uh, the cell phone snap of my Williams EM Fantastic is not going to cut it for making a a play field <laughs> at your at your place. So, no. Uh, yeah, that that that's a what 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 resolution, what detail. Uh, that that's really great. Uh, now you're talking about the uh, silk screening versus digital. Uh, yep. Has it got to the point where there's you, you can't see a difference anymore? Is it is it that good? There's, it 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 finally made. See, I was a silkscreen purist. I never wanted to give it up. I was I was holding on with my fingernails dug in, and um, that model leaves you bootstrapped to having to do at least oh my god to make it worth silkscreening, especially if it's like a 12, 15 color play field. Like we were, I always said a hundred. You know, that's the minimum. It's not even worth tooling up and, and making the screen sets for and all the stuff, unless you're doing 100. We In latter years, we ended up pushing that back to 70, and we're just biting the bullet and just doing it anyway. Because you just to let you in on how, a, you know, when you put down a silkscreen print, um, white hits the wood first, and we usually put that down through a, a heavy, slightly heavier mesh. That took, like, God, white enamel took almost all day to dry, at least six to eight hours. So you usually just let that dry overnight. So there's your white. Now you come back the next day, and then you do your next color, which is the next darkest color, which we'll say is yellow. And after that, when you lay down each layer, they just keep stacking over top of each other till you get to black. But we could usually only get a color or two per day because you still had to allow that that drying where it uh, it hardened up and dried um, so it wasn't wet uh, to or sticky to allow the next color to go right over top of it. So sometimes, a, like if you think about it, a 12, 
most play fields around 10, 12 colors. Some push upwards of 15, 16 sometimes, but those spot colors to lay them down, that print could take even at two colors a day, you're looking at like sometimes a week and a half. Like if you take out the weekend, cause we wouldn't come in on the weekend. So it would blow Monday to Friday and then maybe cut into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday before black went down and there's your one play field run. So you're bootstrapped to that model over and over and over again, that all that time is play fields and racks drying and onto the next color the next day. So it, <laughs> it was, it was great. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, that, that is the way the originals were done and, and solid spot color inks are mixed in buckets. So when you try to mix like a Pantone 200 C red, you know, you can take the pigments, follow the Pantone recipe and like really steer it in and do little swatches and test it over and over till you get it right. And then that is the little bucket you will use for that red. And you had to do that for every color, except, you know, the off the shelf stuff like black and white were obviously in, you know, in cans straight up, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you're, you're obviously very knowledgeable about that process. Did, did you have to learn that? Did you call in outside expertise when you oh, guys started God. for that? Or? It was kind of jumping off the pier to learn to swim, but we did have a little, a uh, little help from uh, a local silkscreen shop here that we, we still partnered with through the year. Sometimes we gave them overflow work we couldn't get a chance to do. So sometimes we were farming out like some plastic sets and back glasses to them just so we could keep our press free um, to keep on the stuff we were working on. So we kept good friends with them. That was a early relationship start that they kind of, you know, they have two or three silkscreen presses over there. They've been in business for almost like 20, 30 years ahead of us. So they were all experts and they had two or three silkscreeners on staff and, and they were a good help. So, yeah, once we uh, bought our first press, it was just me and Mike. It was up to me to sort of learn this beast, and with a lot of trial and error and <laughs> some help from them, that's how it got started. So uh, yep. now that you've gone digital, I, I guess what I imagine the digital is just a is a giant printer. I, I assume that that you put a playfield in. And yeah, it looks that, like a print, it looks like a giant. It's um, it's like a big flatbed. It can do. Oh my goodness, it can do. Like if you want to print a large like road sign or something on it you could let it go all like all day and work on that it, it can do like a you know like an eight by uh, six you know size pretty mammoth piece of wood up to three inches thick or something whatever material you want to print on you can kind of tee it up for that if you wanted but we have jigs and stuff on it that hold the play fields and hold the glass and hold the plastic sheets the petchy sheets and stuff that we can you know move you know change out and change all around to keep it keep it working um, I didn't answer your, I didn't finish your earlier question where you said the quality difference, um, up to like roughly two, two and a half years ago, when we did finally switch to digital, um, we, you know, we got some samples from the, the actual printer company and sent them some of our files, you know, put this on Petchy. We just started with looking at plastic sets, something easy, you know, do this art on plastics and we're going to compare it to our silk screen sheets and just put them side by side under the big bright lights and really see what's going on. And I had to concede, I'll be totally honest with you, because I was, like I said, I was the purest holding on with my fingernails dug in. Um, did not want to let go of silkscreen. But, you know, when I saw it, it was like, mm, you know what? Like, aside from maybe some flesh tones or some weird colors where if you look really close, you can see the fine grain of the sand, of because it's all made up of trillions of little droplets coming out of the jets, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that's the only place where I could perceive it. And I had to get my nose up there and magnifying glass and stuff beyond that. It's like, my God, it all looks like solid spot color ink mixed in a bucket. It's like, I, I give up, you know, now we're talking, <laughs> right? 
Well, I, I because totally that's all I wanted. Yeah, because yeah, the technology wasn't there like a year, two, three, four before that. We were wary of it and didn't want to jump until I, like I said, until I was finally impressed with with this particular machine and company that embraced us and did all my tests. Yeah, I had to give up and throw in the towns. Like, let's let's do this. Well, like I said, I do agree with you. Having done the, like you said, three recently, and of course staring at them for hours side by side as I transferred bits and pieces uh, over from the other. Yeah, no, it's 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 phenomenal. And uh, the other thing I noticed about those playfields, now that you've cleared them, they're fast. It's it's quite quite a change from a from an old playfield. Yeah, I always say it's uh, like a puck on an ice rink, right? It's it's you know we're yeah, used to yeah. hockey up here in Canada. We know that analogy, but it, it certainly does speed up your ball because there's the drag is so reduced that you're. Uh, and some people actually don't like that. They're like, oh my god, like it's almost too too slick. I want it to be a little rougher. <laughs> so they'll yeah. play on you know they'll touch up and you know leave their original playfields alone and just deal with it. But you know there's so many tastes out there, so it, to each their own, I guess. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, just one question. I'm not sure uh, how you get into this. Uh, how does the licensing work for this stuff? Do you have to seek out licenses now? Or Oh, yeah. Like it's yeah. – um, uh, how far should I go back? Well, we, I, I mentioned Gene Cunningham, the late Gene Cunningham from Illinois Pinball. When he bought that – all the the sellout of the actual Bally Williams uh, Pinball Factory and took all those 18-wheelers to Bloomington and cleaned them out um, – Part of that agreement was he took on the legacy and had the intellectual property rights to all of those things. He had all the tooling, the molds, all the old films, wow. stuff yeah. like that. So it kind of started with him, and he was the guy that was sort of like you couldn't just go out and print like a – and on your own just make like a – even if you did your own artwork, make like a, a centaur or, or a playboy or some play field that was in his domain because it's like, uh, 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 you know, that's, I have the intellectual property rights to those. So it became an important thing. Like you couldn't, you couldn't play shifty or you might just see a cease and desist show up on your doorstep. <laughs> and if you yep. didn't comply, he could push it further. And he would, he did. He was a very, he was very wealthy and he would play hardball if you tried to cross him. So it was good to play nice with Gene. And we did from the beginning and we flew down and met him and stuff. We actually flew the centaur films home in the overhead compartment, in the plane, like we babied it, like, <laughs> <laughs> like we were bringing home some Indiana Jones like um, artifact, yeah, right? The treasure, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah, that well, is a treasure. Yeah. yeah. So it's after cool. Gene, something happened where Bally Williams um, or the remaining company, which was WMS Gaming, they're doing slot machines. It was like Bally Fitness. So there was no more pinball division, but they still, they truly still had also intellectual property rights just by legacy of the company. I don't think there was just something. From what I understand, they didn't fully give it up to Gene, but no. yeah, something like that. So they still retained that. So what ended up happening is something in his contract ran out. Like there was a limited time where he had full reign, but then when that expired, along came Wayne Gillard at Mr. Pinball Australia, um, and he bought in and got a second, like a second license that kind of matched Gene's, except he was able to make machines. So it was like enhanced. So then you had a choice. If you wanted to make reproduction parts, you could go to Gene or you could go to Wayne. And, oh, I don't know. I don't want to get too much into the soap opera from back then. But you, no, yeah. if, you, if you really want to go back and do some digging, folks, go back to the old Rec Games Pinball News Group on Usenet News and just see those days where there was actually – it was almost like a war between the two because you were kind of either Team Gene or Team Wayne. It was a weird time. But we mm. ended up going Team Wayne – because Gene stopped wanting to give us so much, like he didn't want to give us the films and he wasn't really supporting us. It was like, 
Wayne just was much more inviting. It's like, hell, I'll make, you can just make whatever you want. You know, Gene was trying to hold on to too much stuff. Like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do that one. Like we wanted to, can we do eight ball deluxe? No, I'm doing that one. Can we do, you know, um, Xenon? No, I'm doing that one. You know, it's like, so it's like, oh, what are we going to make if Gene's doing them all? So it was just like more freedom to just go to Wayne. So we went to team Wayne and then long story short, fast forward to the end. Um, Wayne eventually lost interest in it and, you know, he didn't build the machines he wanted to build. And then, um, Rick Bartlett from Planetary Pinball, um, Bay Area Amusements bought out for, or took it over from Wayne. And now that's where the licensing for Bally Williams stuff reproduction sits now. So, wow. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what a story though. Yeah. 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 Actually, the other thing just, just occurred to me, I sort of one step back here, uh, Kevin is, uh, inserts. Where do you guys get inserts? And <laughs> they're uh, Chicago. Yeah, they still there... come from the original tooling. Yeah, believe it or not, all those tools wow. are down there. A lot of them were lost for a while because we didn't realize there was this quiet plastics factory that had long stopped making inserts where a lot of the late games with the weird um, lightning bolts and um, trapezoids and just some weird shapes. Mm-hmm. They were really hard to find, especially the jeweled inserts like that were used in like, um, uh, like say, oh, what was some of the games that used the jewels? Like old Black Knight used the jeweled Knight, inserts. Yeah, yeah. It was very rare. There's only a few games, then they ditched them again. They went back to normal flat bottom or starburst. But then they they came back with like a little revival, like they're in like um, they're in Tales of the Arabian Nights. They're in a few games, modern games, the jeweled, but. Those were lost. Some of the weird shapes were just, and I say lost because we just, they weren't at the main factory there that's, that did all the tooling. They had all the multi-cavity molds for all the inserts or so we thought. They just said, we don't have those ones. But those ended up getting discovered a few years ago, which, because they were just at a whole different factory that had just moved on long ago and no one knew they were there. So there's the tooling or the t- all of the tooling is in Chicago spread between like 80% of them are at one uh, injection molding factory and 20% are at another, if you catch my drift. So between the two of them, you can get pretty much any insert now. None of them are like unobtainium. So, well, this, this is almost like an Indiana Jones story of going yeah. to old factories and digging out information and talking to lots of people. And it's, it's, it's just fascinating. But inserts uh, are a struggle. Like they're, <laughs> they mm-hmm. don't want to do them. Because these companies now have grown well beyond, like back when they were, all the pinball factories were, you know, pumping out games, like all of them, Gottlieb, you name all the lists, like back in the, the, the heyday, you know, those were big orders for those inserts. They couldn't stop making, like there was just, there was so many millions needed all the time. But now when we call up, you know, to them, it's a chore just to haul the big old tools off the shelf, load them into the machines, get them primed, get the get them heated up, you know, just to shoot like, like 500 or a thousand inserts or something like they just hate it. So they, what they do is they start pumping up the prices. They've been doing that for, Oh God, the last seven, eight years. They've from where we were seven, eight years ago on inserts, we're, we're quadruple to quintuple now what we used to pay back then. Cause they just, they're just tired of doing it. They'll do it begrudgingly, but I just hope they don't pull the wool out from under say, we're just not interested anymore. Cause it is, we pay through the nose for inserts. People would, if they could hear some of the numbers, they probably, their chin would drop because it's just, <laughs> it's gotten so insane, but it's the only way to kind of force their hand into loading those toolings. And, and then you get into the color changes. So you got to take advantage of when that tool is on the machine, 
Well, we want we want amber and yellow and blue and green of that same shape. And then they do flushing fees to ch flush the machine out. Like, it's just, oh, my God. By the time you're done the whole run and get all this big delivery, which just looks like a couple big Amazon boxes, um, you know, you're paying like up, upwards of high five figures for those big boxes. But you need them. There's no getting around it. There's It's right. just the way it is. No, no, they, they make a game, right? And they make. But at least, they're, so at sure. least they're the original tooling, which is still kind of cool. So That's amazing, yeah. That's, yeah. That's, 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 that's great. You can maintain that. So, uh, Kevin, so what's next for you guys uh, in, your, in your projects? Are you expanding? Are you uh, moving into something else? Or? We're actually physically moving. That's a quick answer. Um, okay. Like I said, when I said way earlier that we're kind of peppered around Halifax and all these different shops that grew up and popped up, some of them are in our backyards and some of them are rented and you know, we got storage units and all sorts of things. Um, we're going to bring the dream now is maybe next year we want to consolidate everything together to one like commercial building. We're going to move everything there and everyone will just come to work there. So, you know, that's uh, that's a big step for us because it, it God will be in year. That'll be 2022. So that'll be our 17th year. Finally, just getting it off all the properties and all these rents and just consolidating um, to one commercial building where we'll just have everything in different uh, sections and much more efficient that way. We don't have to, you know, van things back and forth between locations because some of our spots are like, you know, a half hour, 45 minute drive away from each other. The clear coder is like 45 minutes out of, out of town. So oh. yeah, stuff like that. Bring it all in house. So that's yeah, the more efficient and yeah, and closer. Yeah, um, absolutely. Any, any anything future in the? Um, I'm not sure where you guys could go. Um, one thing that comes to my mind is cabinets. Have you ever? Uh, no, I think that cabinets or? coming from Halifax, Nova Scotia. That's going to be a hard ship. Um, that's true. Yeah. And there's lots of people covering that territory. To be honest, there's lots of great cabinet <laughs> makers out there that are starting to come up, come up, and uh, and they they're good at it and they enjoy it. So, like our oh my god, our the thing about <laughs> the thing about here is like our dance card is still so full. Like there's still like our art director, Stu down in Arizona, I'd say still has 20 to 30 Playfield art packages in the kitty that haven't even been touched yet. Right now they're getting into titles that we pushed off for a while um, where we might only sell in totality, maybe 20, 30 units ever if we do make them, but some of them might be 50 to 60, you know, mm -hmm. sellers, who knows, but we're into the, I won't call it scraps now, but all the big stuff's been touched between us and some of the other playfield makers that are that are doing playfields. Um, that those bases have all been long covered. So it's kind of the question always is, is where to go next. So that's kind of where our future is going, and that's why the small run stuff was so important because do you dedicate your year to like, you know, a big run per month, or do you split that month into like five or seven or sometimes ten little runs and touch many more audiences and titles? And that's the model we've been pushing the last couple of years since we went digital. It just, it allows us to now, if you look at our site, we're up to like, I think 60 some play fields in stock with still, you know, 15 or 20 are out of stock, but we're, those are soon going to be filled by the end of the year. So our goal is by the end of the year that all, I think 70 some play fields we offer are all in stock. And that might be as long as there's five or 10, 15, 20 on the shelf, they can sit that way and people can buy them and put them in their cart at their leisure. Right? So it's where to go after that. What will be the next titles and, you know, and mm -hmm. backfill. Well, well, you do have an impressive quantity on on the site right now. It's uh, it's amazing how much it's it's grown over the last last several years. Um, just curious, so what what kind of feedback do you get from the pinball community? I I I see it mostly positive, and I you know they're you know I think you are the premier um, 
pre-production play fields, uh, as far as I know. And uh, yeah, you're getting uh, lots of positive feedback to get. Uh, Mostly, yeah. Like there's there's times people get saucy, you know. It's it's and it's it's our fault. I mean, there's no one's perfect, and if they catch little things on their playfields, the nature of social media is to run and uh, show it to everybody. So you know, uh, yeah, suddenly yeah. there'll be a, you know, CPR playfields suck on Pinside, and there's a thread that starts, and then pictures <laughs> will be posted, and then everyone will chime oh, in, right? Yeah, it's I great fun. That, so yeah. I mean, but that's the nature of social media. And we see the thing is, our, our one of our main weaknesses is communication. We, we've, we've definitely recognized that. And, um, cause we're not, we're just so busy that it's just, I don't get to be all over, you know, Facebook's, you know, Twitter, like they're not even in my phone for goodness sake. And as far as pin side goes, you'd expect that, you know, we'd be all there frequenting it every day, but I just, I just don't like when I, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in, I'm immersed in pinball like all day. So at night, like after supper, I just like to live a normal life. So I don't sit down and grab a snack and, and then, you know, go on pin side for a few hours. I'd rather just, you know, play some games or, you know, work on music or do some hobby, other hobby stuff. You know, I've, I've tried to keep a, a fulfilling rich life, just not all <laughs> pinball, right. As anyone would, sure. you know, and that's well, kind of the way I do it. So my I'd weekends and evenings guys, are free. Yeah. I'd have so that's why we suck. Fields and then answering, um, forum questions for sure um and for me i mean the build quality has been fantastic i, I mean i look for subtle things like you know dimpling holes which are you know you, you dimple holes and drill them to mount things you know out of 300 holes on a you know maybe one's off and it's, mm. it, it amazes me how, uh, how how the quality control is so high now well we try i mean everything and we've slipped don't get me wrong there's been sometimes play fields have gone out with entire sets of numbers missing from like a part of the playfield because it literally got through everybody and no one noticed it and the funny thing is when those little burps happen they're caught fairly quickly we hear from it from a customer who's finally received the final good and then they'll it's either they had run to pin side or they've emailed us directly either way we find out fairly quickly and then we get raked over the coals for it and you know, there's no going back. I can't make those numbers appear. They're, you know, the playfield is the playfield. Most of them will keep them because um, we use either grant a discount or we're very gracious. We just say, you know, there's no sense making anyone be upset or hold on to their playfield that has a botch on it. So it's like, you know, well, if you don't want it, I will send you a shipping label, we'll get full refund, send it back. Cause we'll always, there's always a customer that'll take it at a slight discount. We'll own up to our mistake. You know, we can't sell those at full price anymore. We know that. But that's usually how those playfields end up finding homes. They still end up selling to someone who just doesn't care. Sometimes they'll be like, oh, I'll just make a decal to fix that or something, right? Mm-hmm. Someone usually has a solution. God, if you're going to give me 100, 200 bucks off, heck, I'll go for that. I don't mind. It looks great. You know, so every different, <laughs> so many different tastes and, and, and sentiments out there that, yeah. But we, we do have to own up when those little boops happen. And sometimes they're as simple as the numbers were there, but they, they, when 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 the uh, layers were stacked, it the layer one got dipped under the other, and and the the dropouts weren't made to reveal the color from underneath, and it just it was just a flub that simple, and then no one ever noticed it. So it just, <laughs> oh my god. So we just shake our heads at ourselves sometimes too. Like I'll be honest, it's not like I totally agree when I see everyone so frustrated. Like we're usually told there's a problem on pin side by like good customers. The big ah. Kevin, mm-hmm. Mike, you better get on Pinside. There's trouble brewing. It's like, uh-oh. <laughs> so, and that's usually how we find out about it. You know, some people do email direct as, you know, I bought this. Here's some pictures. Look what's wrong. And they don't run to Pinside. But most run to Pinside, believe it or not. They just, I don't know if they just love it, but that's been the way it goes. So, Good. 
Well, Kevin, that's been very fascinating. I've uh, uh, always been interested in, in how things work there and, and, and your history. Do you have anything else you wanted to, uh, to add today? No, I think we're just, you know, we're just going to keep pushing onward and upward. It's, it's uh, as we move now, and I think the next couple of years, you'll see um, a lot of that stuff that we had, like, um, we used to call them boutique zone play fields. I think if people remember back maybe three, four years ago, we used to collect names for those, and they were just sort of shots in the dark, like how many names could we, could we collect for these more C and D title play fields? Those are kind of what you're going to be seeing. Those do have to eventually come out because we don't want to waste any of Stu's artwork or anything. So, you know, that that's what you'll be seeing. We're still going to be pushing forward with um, back glasses and plastics. A lot of people still forget that. That's that's mm-hmm. almost half. That's almost half the our business, to be honest. Um, yeah, I could I could talk a while. Yeah, no one ever talks about back glasses and play. Which fields. I should because they're yeah, they're amazing <laughs> too, especially the the mirrored ones you guys are working on. It's, yeah, because uh, yeah, people need them, right? And, yeah. and usually people like when they if they're going to do their play field, they usually grab the glass and plastics to go with it. Like we mm-hmm. call it like a trilogy, you know, something like that, a package deal. And we get we even issue discounts for that. So that's going to continue, you know, stuff like that will never really change. Um, but yeah, that's it's much much more of the same and. Uh, you know, we're going to just keep more of an eye out for, you know, everyone says quality control, quality control, quality control. And, and that and our communication, if we do slip up somewhere, those are our weaknesses. We're not out there and talking to everybody as much and things can sometimes get caught if we miss them. So we just keep a hawk eye out for that stuff as much as we can so it doesn't make it to the final product. And if it does, we, we get to quickly, the cool thing about digital is you can quickly revamp, regroup, and the next batch is corrected. So easy peasy. Well, well, that's excellent, Kevin, and we really want to thank you a lot for your time tonight. Um, it's been interesting hearing the history. I mean, for me, pretty much I've been following you since right around 2005 and uh, just watching it go all the way through. And I'm really happy to hear that you're looking at niches now, um, you know, as far as uh, some of these C and D play fields go. Uh, so the future does look very bright, and I know uh, I, I speak for Daryl as well in this case here, where we are very happy with your product. Uh, my meteor is looking really good. Um, good I just good. saw the play field the other day, so I'm I'm uh, super hyped about that, and uh, and it's great to see a Canadian company doing well. I mean, I think that's something else that we all take a lot of pride in. So uh, so that's awesome. No, oh, you're welcome, and I thank you guys for. I think I told you this before when we when we set up this. Um, this is my first podcast. <laughs> I've never, yeah, I think that's never so cool. been on anything. Like, yeah, we've been in like a couple magazine articles and stuff, but as far as sitting down and like my voice going out, like people hearing me, this will be the first time ever that I've done like a, anything like this. So I, I think that's amazing. And, I thank and, you for the invite. We're very happy to be there for that and, and uh, to bring it forward. So we look forward to the future. And again, thank you to both yourself and to Mike for everything you guys have been doing and uh, yeah, all the best. Well, Dan, that was a really interesting interview for me, especially. I've often wondered how these guys produce these play fields, some of the tech behind it. And it's just interesting to hear about the history of the company and uh, Kevin's personal history. Uh, it's it's kind of a, uh, unbelievable that it's a Canadian company. Mm-hmm. It's only one of the handful of companies that make a play field reproduction. I think there's there's one in, in maybe Germany or yep. that. And they certainly don't make the quantity that uh, CPR does. So I'm, yeah, I was very interested and the work that goes into these. Wow. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. I mean, I've, I've actually followed them since about 2005, actually Uh, was right when I got into the hobby and they were looking at doing some alternative, uh, 
alternative play fields and things like that at the time. Not all of them got made, but uh, I've always been interested in them. And at that point, I didn't even realize they were Canadian. But uh, now knowing that, it, it's fun. You know, it, it, it's neat that uh, that Canada is giving something back in the uh, pinball world, and uh, and it's cool. And it was really cool to find out how Kevin got into it and, and how this grew from, you know, a tiny place like Halifax. That's amazing. And now they're doing the... Uh the custom stuff, mm-hmm. which is, I'm not sure where that's going to go, but I know a lot of people like rethemes and, you know, to make your retheme look uh, like a professional game, I think that that's, that's pretty cool. It is, it is. And I mean, just the history of how they've come from, you know, with the silk screening and then going to the uh, digital printing and all, it's, it's just interesting to see it. And, and I guess I'm curious to see where the future goes with them. I, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I think there's a demand for repro parts is insatiable right now. So it's, um, yeah, it will be interesting to see. Well, folks, that's a wrap on another episode of the Vancouver Island Football Podcast. We'd like to thank our house band, Ian and the Soil Chops, with their big head, Saddle Sores. As always, contact us at uh, vipinballpodcast at gmail.com. See you tomorrow, Daryl and Dan.